Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal. And I'm here today on a historic occasion. The first Cult of Hockey three-way podcast with, <laughs> with my good friends Bruce McCurdy in St. Albert and Kurt Levins on Pender Island. Welcome, guys. Three-way podcast, things that sound dirty but aren't. <laughs> three, three old hockey men and all in isolation. Good, e- good evening, David. Good evening, Kurt. Good evening. Kurt, how are, how are things on the island? Uh, well, other than that we can't leave, <laughs> fine. Uh, it's nice yeah. and sunny and mild here in the coast, but like everybody else, we're pretty much confined to home. But if you're going to be confined, I can think of worse places to be. Oh, so. kidding. Yeah. Can you, get, you can get out for walks, obviously, nice walks. And... Yeah, you know, we're lucky. I mean, we live right by the ocean and our property goes right down to the water, so we can get out and walk, no trouble. Um, um, but the, the ferries to and from the mainland in Vancouver Island are down to just about nothing right now. So, uh, not that there's anything to go to when you get there, but, uh, we, we're pretty much Islanders now. We're, we're kind of like the, the crew from Gilligan's Island. So now if anyone's wondering why this is our first three-way cult of hockey podcast, it's because, uh, well, we never figured out the technology and we just had to push push <laughs> one button <laughs> and we could all we could have had kurt <laughs> a lot more anyway we figured it out where we are we are that we have not let this quarantine go without uh some little bit of self-improvement so here we go all right today we're going to talk about a number of topics um we're going to be talking about uh, uh dave tippett's uh, uh work as a coach which is bruce is looking into that for his, his next post uh, Leon Dreisaitl and kind of the lazy boy stats, as I'll call them, that I've compiled on the Oilers and how Leon Dreisaitl is unfortunately at the top of the list. Um, we'll talk about uh, the resumption of the NHL season with quotes from Gary Bettman and Drew Doughty on our list. But we're going to start out just talking about the tragedy uh, of Colby Cave's death. And um, I, I don't have a lot to say about it. There was, I mean, I just thought it was really touching how in Saskatchewan, there was a number of uh, memorials, kind of people getting together in their cars. You guys, did you guys see that video of all the cars um, on, along the highway there? Um, that was that was really something. It's it's just it, it's hard to know what to make of this. Someone dies at that age uh, from this kind of thing. It, I know what happens. I actually. In my hometown, Devon, there is a boy who died in a similar way. Um, it's just terrible. Kurt, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on it? What have you been thinking about this? Uh, well, well, two things. Um, one, that as probably anybody who's watching this knows, the hockey community is a very small one. Uh, and everybody knows everybody else or knows somebody who knows everybody else. Uh, and when I saw the, uh, the comments of, of Mark Lamb, Colby's former junior coach that really struck me because Mark and my brother Glenn were teammates together uh, on the Swift Current Broncos in the early 80s Um, and uh, through my connections through Swift Current through the years um, when the Oilers uh, acquired Colby Cave uh, I got must have been a dozen uh, texts and emails from friends of mine across the province saying 
you've got a great guy there. Uh, you know, the MO on Kobe Cave was he was a true pro, a terrific team guy, would give you everything he got, great in the room, great leadership despite being, you know, an AHL tweener. There, there was just no one who said anything bad about the guy. Uh, uh, so that's the reputation that, that preceded him in, into Edmonton. Uh, so after his tragic passing, I was not surprised to hear people saying many of the same things. As you know, sometimes in society, we tend to angelicize people that pass away and we make them out to be maybe a little bit better than they actually were. In this case, I think the case can easily be made that he was as good or better than people thought he was. Uh, and you see little gestures like Eric Grive, the former Edmonton Oiler, actually put on his Oilers jersey and drove up and parked on the highway um, as, as his parents' uh, car uh, returned back to the Battlefords area where, where where Colby was born and raised. So, again, you know, small hockey community, little stories. Um, those are some of the things that ran through my head over the last few days. Bruce? Yeah, yeah, well, I'll certainly echo what uh, Kurt said about nobody having a bad thing to say about the guy. But you know what? I, and as Kurt says, sometimes you hear nothing but good things when somebody passes. But in the case of Cave, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about the guy. Like, he just seems to be a stand-up guy. All the little clips they showed of somebody posted a tweet of Cave taking the time to talk to his to his son's team when they were sitting on the bench during a pregame warm-up. And the Condors posted this little clip of him talking to a little red-headed girl and taking his helmet off to show her he had red hair, too. And, and uh, they were give you something to remember me by, you know, and it, it's, he's a guy that came up the hard way, never got drafted, played four years in junior. He was an overager before he signed. He was a two-year captain of his team and just very, very highly regarded and um, uh, just seemed to live life the right way. You know, he got the most out of every day. It seemed like one of those kind of, kind of fellows. And uh, he was certainly a, a uh, an asset, uh, you know, a good good player to have in the Oilers organization, even in that role as a tweener. You want guys that can go down to the AHL and show the way to the young kids, and he was one of those kind of guys, and when he came up, you know you got the very best that he had. Just like that, I mean, that's that's the hockey side. I mean, this is, you know, you think of the hockey side, You think I think of a guy like Ryan Mantha, whose career just suddenly ended, like nobody's business but it wasn't like he lost his entire life you know i mean it's just a whole another exponentially tragic story even than that so yeah it's uh, it's it's a sad thing i I'm, the oilers wasted no time in and create creating a uh, a fund uh, and with his wife to uh, help underprivileged kids as i understand it and uh, so there will be you know a legacy of the of the young man but he leaves a hole her uh, her messages on uh, Instagram. Oh. She was right. Where it's that almost too, rip your heart out. Hey, eh? too yeah. painful to talk about. Honestly, yeah. uh, you know, I'm left with uh, you know when you look at. I was looking at his hockey DB numbers. You know, his year over year, and you're just left with this. You know, he he, he was at a midpoint in his career, but who knows where it was going to go and what hockey stories he was yet to write. Like. Maybe he would have gotten a chance in the playoffs this year with the Oilers and come up with a huge goal. Um, maybe he would have, you know, maybe he would have next year would have seen him moving on to Europe and have a uh, a career over there. 
or uh, or come or then come back to the NHL. He was still had that NHL uh, potential. Still, lots of hockey adventures in his future. And and from what the thing I really think, though, with with what everyone was saying about Cave, you know, probably a future coach and uh, yes, and uh, that kind of person and what he might have achieved there. So it's just it's just really. Uh, that sense of loss is really great. Alrighty, Bruce, um, Gary Bettman, let's talk about what he said to Fox Sports. Um, he was on a, a radio station, and what are the key quotes that we're going to be discussing here from Mr. Mr. B? Fox Business Network, actually, was the... Uh, was, mm. uh, and the quotes, uh, as per NHL.com, uh, uh, he says, my guess at this point is we're probably going to be playing into the summer, which is something we can certainly do. Uh, we need, he, he quoted Trump saying we need to get our sports back. And uh, Bettman's point of view is that uh, if, first and foremost, their first priority, we think people need to feel safe. We don't want to put anybody's health at risk. So right away, that's, you know, that applies to our players, all the personnel put on a game, ultimately fans. So part of this is going to be a determination as to how to best understand when it is safe to go outside and ultimately, of course, inside to play uh, hockey. And they've they've already extended their self-quarantine period through April 30th, but uh, uh, he's... Uh, uh, they're still talking about the, uh, you know, the, the travel, and this is this is something that's concerned me from the beginning, David. You'll remember we had this conversation a couple times. He said, uh, uh, "Our health, our, uh, when we decide it's time to play, we've got to get everyone back and be comfortable. Not only are we not infecting the population of players, but we're not bringing the coronavirus from other places into jurisdictions where the players and other personnel are going." So. The players coming into a city as being maybe uh, uh, carrying some risk, so that, that's uh, that's going to be a big one for them. Yeah. To, um, What's your take on it, Kurt? Well, I think it's a bit uh, presumptive on his part that there would be any travel. I mean, uh, not that the Kings are going to make the playoffs, but there's there's not going to be hockey played in Los Angeles for months. Oh, um, we're talking about. Are you talking about Doughty here or Batman? Uh, no, I'm talking about Batman. Oh, okay. uh, but I just I just mentioned that Los I, Angeles is one city. There's there's going to be no live sports there anytime soon. No. And I and I'd follow up awfully awfully close, uh, even though their situation is worse with New York City, where both the Islanders and the Rangers could end up in the playoffs, depending on how they kind of settle things out. Well, you tell me when they're going to put people in in Madison Square Garden again. Um, and so I, I think if it resumes, I don't think it will be anything close to normal, which would be traveling back and forth to competing cities. I think the best chance, and I think it's remote, but I think the best chance is to go to the neutral site model, no fans, full quarantine for players, staff, uh, et cetera. Uh, to me, that's the only way right now, at least that they're going to be playing hockey in the summer barring uh, someone fast tracks uh, uh, um, uh, a drug that would be available in months and not a year like most people are predicting. So I, I don't, the, the main hang up I think is the border issue because if there's going to be playoffs and finish the regular season, you're going to have to have some movement over the borders. 
and Canada, U.S. And right now, only essential people can do that. Now, Trump has talked about opening up the borders, and that was uh, not hugely popular. I mean, I think Quebec had more than 100 deaths today from uh, from the COVID-19. So the border issue is going to have to be solved. But we're not talking about something that's going to happen in the next uh, two weeks. Or even I th- I think the earliest they get going now is is probably mid May, uh, in terms of a return to camp. So this is a whole month away, which is a very uh, it, you know Germany's now opening up, uh, they're opening up their schools. They're opening you can, on May fourth. You'll be able to go to the hairdresser, uh, in <laughs> if you're in Germany. Countries are slowly across Europe, depending on where they are in the, on their own uh, deal with this uh, opening up, but. So that's that's to me the main issue because I think if you can get a situation where the players can um, be tested, that's the second big issue. Is there going to be lots of testing available? Yeah. Uh, so lots of testing available, so they know that the players, uh, at least uh, before they come to camp, while they're at camp, in their games, they're they're being tested and uh, and they don't have uh, the virus. Then you can get them into for the, for playoff series. You get him into quarantine, and this is what's been talked about at length. And, and uh, I thought Bettman's, uh, let me just find it again. I thought his key quote was, my guess at this point, he says, we're probably going to be playing into the summer, which is something we can certainly do. Now, he, Bettman isn't given to idle speculation. He is about as hard-nosed and uh, clear-eyed, cold-eyed an operator, I think, as I've seen in hockey. I mean, he's a just a very uh, tough hombre, tough-minded person. And that was a pretty positive statement. He's, you know, he prefaces it all with my guess, because he doesn't know. None of us know. But probably going to be playing into the summer, and which indicates to me he's thinking about starting not in July. He's talking about playing into July. So I'm guessing uh, we see, my, my bet is early, that the games will be starting up late May, early June, playing into the summer in a quarantine situation, not before any fans. And and you guys, we were, we were all looking at that one study. I think it's from a group. I think they're from Harvard. It was in, uh, it's an abstract. <laughs> it's uh, at sciencemagazine.org by a number of leading epidemiologists, including Mark Lipsitch. Lipsitch is the guy who caught world attention uh, back in February, certainly got my attention for the really emphatically on COVID back in mid-February when he said between, I think at the time he said between 40 and 70% of us are going to get it. I think he's since said about 20 to 60%. And in this paper, he talks about, you know, there's a, a huge focus on this first wave, but this isn't, it's not going away. We're going to have wave after wave after wave. I, Kurt, I don't think they're going to be playing before fans for a year. I think they'll play yeah. in empty arenas and they'll be able to travel around and they'll have protocols for players if they get sick. I don't see arenas. I I, I think, like, if they're thinking November uh, for the earliest for ha- having fans come out, that's, I, maybe, I'm not sure about that. I'll be surprised to see it. We'll have to see how this plays out, but I but I do think the TV money's there that they will be playing, and they're going to be playing uh, sooner than later. Well, I have two cents, and then I, I I want I want to hear what Bruce has to say. Um, I I know from a very 
prominent NHL source that they have been talking about potentially returning to play in July. Okay. Uh, I think it's possible they could start to get some sort of training camp before then. But what I hear is the earliest they think they could do it is July. So there's that. The other thought I have is this is a very fragile idea. If you think about it, and, and I agree with you with probably no fans until you said, David, and with all the quarantine and all that sort of stuff. But think about it. What happens when one player on one team tests positive? How do you know that they have not spread the virus to other members on the team? As a result, how does that playoff series resume? As a result, how do any of the series resume? I think we're on a very, very um, thin wire here, and I'd love to see it return as much as anybody else, but I think it's rife with complications and circumstance. Bruce? Yeah, well, uh, just another quote from Bettman. He's he talking about our competitive balance is so extraordinary. There are seven teams that were on the bubble of making the playoffs, and not all the teams have played the same number of games. Whenever we do come back, and this is where I'm talking about being agile and flexible, we're going to have to do something, whether it's complete the regular season in whole or in part, whether or not it's expanded playoffs, we're going to have to do something that's fair and has integrity. So that's, uh, that's, going, to be, uh, uh, that's going to be a very tall order for sure. And my wonder, too, about the TV aspect of, you know, the TV money is there, but is it there? Like, are the advertisers behind the TV or is the life change for the advertisers that they, uh, I mean, not necessarily all of them have products to advertise just now. I guess hopefully that'll change for the better and uh, uh, as time goes on. But that's, you know, that that's, uh, uh, that's going to be tricky. Major haircut with revenues. And Kurt, to answer your question about, like, if some one player gets it, you know, that's a really interesting question. And, and I think... It's not just hockey that's going to be dealing with this. I mean, they're dealing with it up right now at Curl Lake at the camp in Fort McMurray area, right? Yep. A couple of people have it. They don't shut down the whole operation because a couple of people got it. You isolate, you uh, test, you test, you test. And that's going to be the key. You need to have a ton of testing. So it's, it's right away, everyone can get tested on the team. And you can isolate who needs to be isolated at that time. But all kinds of businesses... Um, are going to have now right now it's just kind of essential businesses but in may we're going to start to see i think in jurisdictions that haven't been that hard hit in canada we're already seeing it in in europe denmark and germany non-essential businesses less essential businesses opening up and that's when the rules are going to be developed for okay at a a non-essential business what happens so uh so we'll see. This is, well, if, this if, is res- if wrestling can be declared an essential service in Florida, I guess maybe hockey can be in Canada. <laughs> oh, <that> Florida. <laughs> Florida man declares wrestling an essential service. <laughs> My son follows this website and it's called Oh Florida. And every day you can check and see somebody has done something stupid in Florida. And, and, and it's astonishing what goes on there. It's, it's a, uh, it's a trying ground for the Darwin Awards. Yeah. Um, here's an interesting one. So Drew Dottie was asked about this, and he, he didn't think there was going to be a season. Um, you know, he wasn't that negative about it, but he just didn't think there was going to be a season. Didn't think it was. And I was thinking, if Drew Dottie was on a team that 
that had a chance to win the Stanley Cup, um, he might be a little bit more bullish than he would say. Um, positive, <laughs> like, seriously. Like, if Drew Dunn yeah. had a chance to win the Stanley Cup, do you think he would be saying that? No, he'd be, <laughs> we are going to find a way. But then he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said to Greg, uh, and uh, this is, I got the transcript of that interview from uh, ESPN's Greg Wyshynski. Doughty said, in all seriousness, it's not going to be like winning a real Stanley Cup if there is a playoffs. And, um, you know, I, I think he's I think he's right. It's not going to be uh, like winning a real Stanley Cup. Obviously, it's not. But, uh, like, listen, if this happens, it's going to be better. It's going to be it's going to be significant in a different way than a different Stanley Cup playoffs. It's not going to be, you know, before the maddening crowd and the usual thing. But it's going to be a real it's going to be a small but significant symbol that we're finding a way to coexist. And that's what it's going to be coexistence. And once we start to get our heads around that, that's going to change everything. How do we coexist with this really dangerous uh, virus? And uh, that's what playing the playoffs and winning this playoffs will represent. And I, I wouldn't underestimate that in the least. Bruce? Well, Doughty's showing, throwing shade, but that's what Drew Doughty does, as I can tell. <laughs> say if this was a different year and his team was in the hunt i think that story might sound a little bit different than it does but yeah. and with la being where they are in the standings i'm sure their players would be just as happy to see the pit the entire season pitched down the chute yeah you know what the nhl season mattered after 9 11 it, it mattered after the boston marathon it mattered after the lockout uh mattered after the gulf war uh it if they could do it this time it would matter again Let's talk a little bit of uh, straight-ahead hockey here. Sure. So we, uh, Bruce and I, this winter again, did our scoring chance project, which I've been doing since uh, 2007-08 on goals and 2010-11 on, on every single scoring chance, video review and breaking it down. And this year we uh, compiled for the first time in kind of a usable form for us stats on players. Just let me find the... Uh, categories and I, i'm going to call these the lazy boy stats these are when players make plays in the defensive on the ice that drive fans uh crazy and maybe coaches even crazier so uh what we're talking about here is um oh my goodness this chart's small here we go we're talking about the turnovers lost battles missed assignments bad line changes, weak back checks, and allowing breakaways that, that, that players do on the ice. And a missed assignment is, generally speaking, when we, it's usually happens, that happens in the defensive zone, where a player essentially should be covered in the slot, and this, the, for the forwards at least, it's the center usually has that role, although sometimes they switch off. And the, the, they're just nowhere to be seen. There's no one in the, in the vicinity, and someone's wide open in the slot. For, uh, and that happens all the time in the NHL, much more than you'd think. Um, you know, forwards uh, make that kind of mistake. So this year when we compiled those numbers, the shocking fact, the non-shocking fact actually, because I, I, you could sense this coming from a mile away, is that Leon Dreisaitl was kind of the runaway leader in the, um, in the Lazy Boy stats. And uh, he had by far the most turnovers. Now he played the most even strength ice time, but even on a rate basis, he had 21 turnovers that led to grade A scoring chances. McDavid had 13, Kara 10, and Cassian 10. Uh, when it came to lost battles, uh, McDavid had 18, 
Dreisaitl 13, Sheehan 11. Um, that's no surprise either because they have a bit more defensive responsibility down low uh, as, a, as opposed to wingers where you're going to have that kind of lose that kind of battle on a grade A chance. Missed assignments, Dreisaitl 9. The next most was uh, Nugent Hopkins with 3. There's a whole bunch of guys who were tagged on bad line chains bad line changes, but when it came to weak back checks that we counted, Dreisaitl 10, McDavid 7, and no other, uh, uh, Cassian 5, and no other player had more than 2. And allowing breakaways, Dreisaitl 5, that's usually when the forward's supposed to be forechecking a defenseman, and he's not, and that defenseman rips a pass up the ice for a breakaway. So Dreisaitl had 5, and the next highest was uh, James Neal with 3, McDavid with two. <laughs> so in category after category, there he was. All right, the your 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 2019-20 NHL MVP, which I think he will win and deservedly so. Different argument, uh, Leon Dreisaitl. What do you make of it, Bruce? Well, yeah, um, <laughs> some of it. I mean, things like weak back checks. When you look at that, you see Dreisaitl ten, McDavid seven. Cassian five, they were a line for the entire first <laughs> half of the season, including all of that December where things kind of went sideways and then some, and they all had their, their struggles that time, but uh, other, you know, allows breakaways. The other play that'll happen is the forward will make a bad turnover and there'll be one quick pass to a breaking forward yeah. the other way. And that often yeah. would be Leon's mistake on those. He is a, a high risk player. Uh, in some ways, not every way, but in some ways, he reminds me of the great Marc Messier. And this is one of those ways. I used to joke that Marc Messier leads the league in rookie mistakes every year. <laughs> he, uh, he would do those same, just drive you nuts with a sort of careless, sort of not really thinking something through. or uh, uh, And yet, you know, such a talent, talented athlete that he could more than make up for those uh those little uh, peccadillos with, uh, you know, great play and producing goals or, you know, game-changing plays of various descriptions when you're talking about Mark Messier. And uh, uh, he, one thing about Messier, he made a lot fewer of those kind of mistakes in the playoffs than he did in the in the regular season when he kind of pay, paid attention. And, and our very small sample size of Leon Dreisettle in the playoffs is... Uh, is quite compelling. He uh, he was outstanding in the 2017 playoffs. So, uh, you know, that's that's a situation where, you know, players learn they're bearing down at all times, and sometimes these silly little things go away. Kurt? I had three thoughts. Um, one, a player like Leon Dreisaitl sees things that other players can't, and he will take those opportunities knowing that he's not trying to bat a thousand, he's just looking for a high batting average. And you see that from all great players. That's one thing. Uh, my second point would be, remember, there was a 15, 20 game stretch there, or maybe it was even longer, maybe it was 25 games, where he was ridden like a rented mule. Take a look at his TOI stats. I mean, that guy played way too much uh, because Dave Tippett just needed him. And to my eye, and, and not to my stat book, a lot of those errors, which I saw just like you guys did, a lot of them happened in the in the latter stages of games where the guy was just out of gas. 
my my last point would be of of all those uh, uh, leaderboards that David listed off, I noted that there was one that he didn't mention, and that was the NHL's leading point getter. Yes, that's the argument for him being. <laughs> and listen, there are so many. We, we've got and we've gone on about the arguments why he should be league MVP. Ain't no doubt about it. Um, Kurt, the, he had that terrible, and, and Bruce, you brought up the, 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 that that was a line: Cassian, McDavid, and Drysaddle. They had a bad that stretch line. In there was a whole trio. That line was so rancid on defense in December mm. this year, late November, December. They just, they just, I think they got it in their heads that they could outscore. They could carry this team on their back just by outscoring. They put pressure on themselves to be that line, to the outscoring line, and just score, score, score. And at the same time, I, and this is one of my longtime arguments about splitting up Dry Settle and McDavid, I think it totally confuses those guys in the moment about who is the center and who's the wing. And they would make, they would not make the right reads and they would leave the guy open in the slot again and again and again and again. And um, it, they just, no one knew who was supposed, who was, who was essentially F1 covering down low. And, and um, they just, it was, it was a shambles. And I don't think, I don't think you can switch the players around like that. They're just not, the game happens too fast, even for Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl in the defensive end for them to really not know who is the center and who's the wing. And I don't think they ever did know, honestly. And uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. The the one thing, the other, the last point I'll make is, if if we had better defensive stats in hockey, uh, for for all the players, we would be far more aware of defensive slumps. And it's the one thing that that we all know when a player's on a hot streak, and players constantly, everyone, he's on a hot streak, he's on a hot streak. I'll tell you what, from tracking these numbers over the years, players go into horrendous defensive slumps. Through the years, most players and defensemen, defensemen usually have a run of at least 10 games. Some of them have two or three runs of of that long during a season where they are wretched on defense. And suddenly they crank it up and they're really good again. And the same goes for forwards. And that was one of those runs for Dreisaitl and McDavid. They were wretched on defense for that that stretch of it's, it's 10 to 15 games. Any final thoughts on that? Or are we ready to move on to the topic of Dave Tippett? Uh, okay. No, oh, yeah, I guess I was going to say, uh, I think I may have used my power of override on dry saddle more than any other player this year. <laughs> what do you mean? In terms of uh, veto power on uh, scoring chance uh, plays. I thought uh, that there, there were times where there were times, well, he makes a lot of good defensive plays. It makes problems go away, and we don't really rate those. We're counting the ones that wind up in actually being a scoring chance. And yeah. So anyway, he, he's uh, he's still a work in progress, you know. And, and you know what? So is Mark Messier at 23 and 24. You know, I wasn't going to add anything else, but Bruce makes a neat point. When I'm scoring games, and God, I miss scoring games. I bet we all do. Um, but I, I, I actually do have a scoring system where I do notate uh, excellent defensive plays by various players. And I know you guys pay attention to that as well. But I find on a consistent basis, while I see the same mistakes you guys see, let's not kid one another, uh, but I also end up with multiple defensive check marks beside his name after practically every game that I score, which not everybody sees because the defensive plays aren't the sexy ones and most people's eyes follow the puck. 
Um, but he is, while he's certainly giving some an offense in terms of giveaways, turnovers, etc., he's taken some on the defensive end as well. And I think you're right. There isn't really an accurate stat that shows that. I think he's... Stick, a eh? defensive stick. Yeah. He gets a piece of a lot of passes. And, yeah. And uh, he, just, just he, messes this, things up. Yeah. I think he's the best defensive forward on the Oilers and was this year. It's just that he 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 stays out over long on shifts and he use, gets used too much in, in games and, and then he has some bad moments. If they cut the shifts, if he cut his shifts down and they cut ice time down, this will change. And in the playoffs, he'll be a defensive monster. I, I don't have any doubt about it. I mean, this is why when he's out on the three-on-five on the on the PK, he's the best Oilers forward by far. Mm-hmm. I mean, of all those set defense, of all those centers, I mean, he's going to be the guy that's going to be the shutdown center, even more than like if you need to shut them down. You don't. I don't send out Riley Shea, and I send out Leon Drysidle. So he is a fantastic uh, defensive hockey player. And Bruce, do you, so do you think I was too soft on Drysdale consistently, well, or too hard? I, well, I, I thought you were harsh on him a couple times. <laughs> Probably. I, yeah. And anyway, it's uh, p- people see him and expect, you know, like he looks so good, you expect everything to be perfect, and he's not. I'm glad I'm too hard on him now, then, because I, I love the player, right? And I, I would worry that I would be the other direction because I think he's such a fantastic player. Well, quick internal poll: who, who, who on this podcast is the toughest, uh, toughest marker of the three? For for grades? Yeah. Well, it's I don't. Well, Bruce, ha- I, we could actually prove this with numbers, but you'd have to. Uh, Bruce could do that, but I, well, my guess is that I give both the highest numbers and the lowest. That's what I think. I get. I I would say I would argue, and I could be wrong, but I think I have the highest variation in marks, and I and I do that partly to you know, because I like to generate some discussion as well, and <laughs> take. I like to take a stand because I think it's fun to take a stand. My view is that I probably mark the softest, easiest. I, <laughs> I, I think David. My perception is David marks the hardest. And probably the guy with the fairest eye of the bunch is probably Bruce. <laughs> there you go. The fairest of them all. <laughs> I, have a small, I have a smaller range. Of by far the lion's share of my marks are between three or even four and seven. Yeah. You go over Bruce's. I'll keep those, those extreme marks for extreme taste. Wow. <laughs> I like to reward a player and, and give, him a, give him a thrashing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're moving on to the final topic of the night, eh? It's uh, Dave Tippett. Uh, Bruce, you're you're working on a series of posts now about uh, Dave Tippett. What's your what are you looking at in the first one? Well, I'm comparing the last three years where we've had three uh, extremely experienced uh, NHL coaches, uh, Todd McClellan from. Starting from 2017-18, so the year after Oilers made the playoffs, so not entirely fair to McClellan. But since then, he coached for 102 games, Hitchcock for 62, and uh, Tippett for 71. So a fairly level playing field. And I just divided the the three seasons into the games coached by by each man. And uh, for uh, uh, McClellan... uh, I'm particularly looking at power plays and special teams. McCollum, uh, in his 102 games, the Oilers scored only 45 power play goals and allowed 74 power play goals against. I really torpedoed the 17-18 team very badly when they finished last in the NHL in power play goals. 
Uh, and it didn't help him get off to a good start in 1819, where he was ultimately fired after 20 games. Uh, but for Hitchcock, uh, in his 62 games, they scored 33, they allowed 45. So again, the same problem, leaking goals on special teams and, and not earning them back. And Dave Tippett just turned that entirely around with uh, 59 goals for, power play goals for, 31 power play goals against. So a huge positive goal differential. Uh, that kind of made up for some soft five-on-five play and actually made the Oilers an outscoring team. Uh, But just far more, like per 60 minutes, which is a lousy way to judge power play, but it's kind of the standard. Uh, McClellan, 5.7, Hitchcock, 8.0, Tippett, 11.3. Like the power play just picked it up to a whole other level. Goals per 60 on 11.3. And one of the things that he did... Uh, was really, uh, he really pushed hard on the power play to give um, his top players the most time. And, and David, you did a tremendous amount of, of very good research showing how they rejigged, you know, some of the tactics of the power play so that those very good players got more shots. But McDavid, uh, with uh, McClellan, he paid 68% of the power play minutes. Uh, with Hitchcock, that went up to 80%. With uh, Tippett, 88%. Wow. Which is like saying he's playing a minute and 45 seconds out of every two-minute power play. And uh, Dreisaitl, you know, much the same. He went from 65% to 80 to 87. Uh, the funny one was Clefbaum. He was 65% with McClellan. He dropped to 50% under Hitchcock. Hitchcock actually used Nurse more per game than he did Clefbaum. Uh, uh, it wasn't just Clefbaum was out, but uh, Nurse just, he seemed to like Nurse more. Well, Clefbaum's up to 82% with uh, with uh, Tippett. And finally, R&H, 52% with McClellan, 76 with Hitchcock, 80, uh, wait a minute, 52, 76, 85%. Mm. So the main four guys are playing well over, you know, a minute 40 of every power play. Or they're playing 40 and they're scoring, you know, oftentimes, you know, the puck is in the net before they go off. So the other guys never get a chance at all. Mm. But they, uh, uh, he, he really has loaded up on their, um, uh, on the, using their top player, their number one unit, as much as possible. And only the net front position did he really split between the two guys, uh, uh, James Neal and Alex Jason, uh, who each were a uh, little north of 50%. But uh, he, uh, uh, he changed the, uh, uh, he changed that equation. And also the per 60 rate went up. Well, part, part of the reason it went up was that uh, the best players were on the ice more, but they were also themselves scoring more. Uh, the team was scoring more per 60 when they were on the ice. Uh, again, for example, I'll just use dry settle. Uh, 7.82 per 60 under McClellan. 7.91 under uh, 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 Hitchcock. And under... Uh, uh, oh, hang on, rats! I got the wrong stat. Sorry, that was penalty kill. Uh, Five point eight eight under McClellan, nine point eight four under Hitchcock, eleven point seven four under Tippett. So more scoring per unit time and more time. So of course they're pumping in the points, and uh, so just the deployment of, you know, how how much ice time they're getting, and and taking goals out of that and, and not really looking into the tactics because you've already done such a good review on that front, David. What do you make of it, Kurt? 
Um, uh, I think the numbers largely speak for themselves. While Bruce yeah. was listing those off, I was thinking about identifiable change in tactics. And the one that really sticks out with me with Tippett is how much earlier in the first power play shift they're getting a shot on goal. Which, as, as you know, one creates chances, two moves defenses around, and three, they're often getting a whistle. So that top unit is also getting a breather partway through that long power play shift, which is enabling them to be out there longer as well. So I think that first shot tactic, even though it doesn't necessarily result in goals on that first shot, often by Clefbaum from, from his side of the point, I really think that's a wrinkle in the power play that we hadn't seen under Todd or, or under Hitch that I think is, is leading to some success with this group. My take on it is what we, what we saw, Kurt, is that, um, uh, like, I don't, you'd have to, t- uh, time that, but I think that what we, what we definitely saw was a huge emphasis on outside shots in the McClellan power play. Shoot, shoot, shoot from the outside. Clefbaum shot rate was way higher under uh, McClellan than it than Yeah, because Todd and was a volume guy, right? Yeah. Todd, Todd, so what, what I think we saw was that first shot, uh, it's coming because Clefbaum has fundamentally, fundamentally changed his orientation from a shooter to a passer. And that first shot is him getting the puck, and they're ex- they've been playing together long enough that their execution's good. Clefbaum really understood his role in a way that he never understood it in the past and, and executed it better than, than before. And, and his role changed and he became the distributor and him setting up, um, you know, I don't know what the shots rates for all these power plays were overall, but for good shots, they were getting way more good shots. And that's, that's the difference. And it's because Clefbaum wasn't shooting as much and was setting up those other guys for uh, on the wings and into the middle of the ice for great shots. And that's that was the difference of philosophy. And um, I think that's that was, hopefully it'll keep working because it sure as heck worked this year. I like your comment on consistency as well, because these guys have been on a power play together for quite some time now. Yeah. And that makes a difference. You, some people will say, man, how did he even know he was there? Well, if you play with a guy on a power play unit for long enough, you do know where he is. I've seen it at all levels. And that consistency, it'll it'll pay off after a while. Another thing that changed, I think, for the better, and this was something we talked about before, David. I used to rail against how it seemed to me that McDavid was locked on the right half wall and sort oh, of being yeah. the standard, you know, run the power play from the side wall. And it was like they unlocked him and said, okay, Connor, your skill is skating and, and creating plays on the fly. Why don't you do that and we'll... You know, we'll we'll let other guys take the various positions, but uh, Connor's all over the zone. And you you wrote uh, an excellent post on that subject, talking about you know how you have sort of visions of Drysaddle being the bomber from the right dot, or, or Nugent Hopkins being the uh, making the play off the left wall, either the behind the back pass back to Clefbaum or the shot from the top of the circle. Whereas with McDavid, you said he didn't have other than. His standard play of gaining the zone like no one else in the league, I don't think I've ever seen uh, for gaining the zone. Uh, but in the zone, he's all over the place. It's not like you say, well, this is his sort of his 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 office. His office is the zone. So uh, I think that's been working well. Well, and there's way more motion in this power play as well, yeah. which again moves defenses around. Yeah. McDavid is all over the place, and and it, yeah, it, it quickly as it, his game evolved, it's it just struck me. That's what they got to use this guy. Like he's got to be the rover, moving here, there, and everywhere, and causing chaos. And 
And uh, Glenn Gillitson deserves a lot of credit here. He he was the he was the coach that really that created the best Oilers power play since the 1980s. I think it was the second best Oilers power play of all time. Is that right? Or is it the best? Best um, percentage. Yeah, uh, best uh, percentage. Yeah. So uh, way to go to that unit and to to their uh, specific coach. Well, gents, I think. Uh, I think we've uh, gone through our topics. I just really want to thank each of you for joining the podcast tonight. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Bruce, and it was a great pleasure to have you join in tonight, Kurt. It's nice to talk to real people for a change. (laughs) (laughs) Well, long way off there on that island, eh? But, I mean, we're all living in our own island these days, it feels like. Yeah, we are. Well, take care, fellas. Always, always good to see you. Yeah. All righty. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. And as soon as I find the off button, I will hit it.